there. Welcome to Outside of a Dog. I'm your co-host, Sharon Herpeter, here with Brandon Bowman, the little brother I'm glad I never had. How are you today, Brandon? Well, I'm doing well. I'm just getting over. I think the ragweed came in with a vengeance last week in Alabama. So if I have a little coughing fit here, I'll try to go off microphone. But Yes, you preached last week in an octave, an octave lower than you usually preach. Well, it made me kind of sound very uh, yes, resonant were, and were, reverent. Yes, that's a word. That's a description. Welcome to everybody who has tuned in for the second episode of Outside of a Dog. Usually people save this stuff for the end, but I'm going to do it right in the beginning to help get the word out about this podcast. If you would rate us in iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts, and if you would tell your friends, and if you would even write us a review, if you are going to do that, if it would be a five-star review, that would be great. If you don't think we're worth five stars, just forget I said anything. And so, Brandon, I was wondering this week, I've been thinking a lot about the motivations for reading. You know, some people, I'm sure you have noticed, read it's always like a 100% light reading. To me, that's kind of like a diet of marshmallows. It's like marshmallows are great now and then, but I don't want to only eat marshmallows. So why? what what have been your motivations for reading? What's your motivation for reading these well, days? I don't think about it like eating, like marshmallows versus you know broccoli or spinach I and that kind of thing. I relate everything to Everything's eating. to food. Oh, yes. I got it. But, but I tend to think about it more like exercise. You know, a light walk around the block is fine or a sprint up and down a hill or lifting a thousand pounds. Those are different forms of exercise, but they're all good. My mom would talk to parents a lot of times about their kids. My mom was a librarian. We talked about that last week. And she would talk to parents all the time because they were concerned that their, their children were not reading books at their reading level. And my mom says, I don't read books at my reading level. We, we tend to read books that we enjoy regardless of the reading level. And so that we can, you know, we can read things for fun. And I would say that, you know, picking up a newspaper article and reading it or a summary or these types of things, it's better than not reading at all in the same way that walking around the block is better than just sitting on the couch. But my motivation for reading is that I do believe it, it keeps my mind active. It keeps me engaged in, in creative thought. And, and I think about the idea that as I read, um, I have the opportunity to, to not allow somebody to do all the processing for me. I do love the idea that from time to time I've got to write down a word and go look it up, and then suddenly my vocabulary has increased because I found a, a word that came from somebody else's serving up of what they are putting on in print, or to, to travel to places and allow them to paint a picture with their words. As a pastor, that's what I do, is I speak and I write and I communicate this way. I don't make movies. Um, and so by, by reading, it helps me to express myself better. And, I, and I, I enjoy it for fun. It's something you can put a book in your pocket. I've got a little paperback here that we're going to talk about today that I took to a ball game with me the other day. We went and watched a football game Saturday, and it started to rain, and we found a, uh, a dry spot while the rain delay was going on, and I got about 50 pages knocked out as I sat there. M- most people would not think that the Puritans are something that you read in spare snatches at a football game. Well, it was <laughs> funny. The lady that was sitting next to me I made a comment, said, I can't believe you can concentrate here. Right. And I shared with her, actually, you know, back in the dark ages when you could do this, I used to go and, and study in college, I'd go to the Birmingham airport and sit at the terminal. And, and just with that steady uh, din of noise, it was no specific noises, no specific voices, just a steady buzz. And there's activity around, but none of it really drew my attention. And I could really focus in that environment rather than the absolute quiet solitude of a library. So reading has made you quirky. 
Well, I don't think we can blame reading for that. <laughs> I, I think there's genetics involved and, and just a whole host of We're not going to blame your mother. Things. Your mother is the saint. Well, now, how about you? Why, why do you read, Sharon? You're a more well-balanced person than I am. I think that that is clear. And so I don't read for, I think all of your reasons are really, really good. I don't read for anything, any reason that's all that good, I don't think. Well, I mean, it's a good reason, but it's an unbalanced way I come to it. I have always wanted to learn. Learning has been really, really important to me, which is why I've been to school for longer than anyone you will ever meet who only has an undergraduate degree. But I always felt very poorly read. I was always very, I was acutely conscious of it and didn't like that feeling. And when I was younger and was reading constantly, I had no direction. And of course, this was before the Google machine. And, you know, I didn't know where to go. Never occurred to me, ask a librarian. I just didn't know where to go. And so once I started I found online people who were well-read, and once I started, once, once the online world opened up to me and I began to find places to go to find good things, I wanted to be a part of that. It's like I wanted to be a part of the ancient conversation, kind of. Like r- right now I'm reading the Odyssey. It doesn't get, except for scripture, it doesn't get a lot more ancient than Homer. So it's, it's probably just a selfish desire to be more educated is why I read, which like I said, it's not really a bad reason, but I think I do it because some deep-seated insecurity or something. Well, I, I agree with you on that. I was just thinking about as you were speaking, uh, just this past weekend, I had to read a 20-page article for a class that I'm taking. The title of it is The Index of Autonomous Functioning, Development of a Scale of Human Autonomy. Oh, well, you're going to have to send me a link to that. Oh, I know. It's, it's, it's captivating <laughs> reading. And, and it really is. But what bothered me about it is similar to what you're talking about. It bothered me that, that as I started to read it, I did not understand what I was reading. So suddenly now it becomes a challenge because it's using phraseology, it's using words that I don't have in my standard vocabulary. It's talking all about how we, uh, how we understand how we function, what are our motivations and these types of things. And so it's a course that is going to stretch me in the, in the reading. Now I sit there and think I get anxious about that because I'm thinking, wow, this is going to take a lot of labor rather than reviewing the things that I've always enjoyed reading. Very similar to your friend David and his reading list he puts in front of you to stretch you, to, to press you out in directions that, that you haven't thought about or to, uh, to cause you to do some things you wouldn't naturally select. So I'm the same way. I want to learn. I want to grow. I don't want to to have those limitations. Right, right. My friend David, for those most of you who don't know, my I like a reading challenge every year. And this year, um, my I have a friend named David, and he is extremely well read. I I really think he's the most well read person in history. And um, we'll be talking, and he'll mention a book, and I'll say, oh, I haven't read it, and he will just go into paroxysms of just disbelief that I could not have read such a book. So this year for my reading challenge, I suggested that he pick out 20 books for me to read. And I here we are September, and I am in the sixth book. So I may not be I may not be hitting all 20 this year, but we'll see. I read other things. That's part of the problem. I haven't just read the 20 that David has assigned me. But um, but anyway, well, well, like I said, it's like exercise. You can set off your goal. I'm going to run 20 miles this week. But when you only run 15 or five, that's still five more than right, sitting on right. your couch. 
Right. And I re- when I was in grad school, I had to read things like titles like what you just what you just um, demonstrated. And I, I didn't uh, at first it was very intimidating and very it was just very intimidating. And I thought, what am I doing in, in this class? I remember the very first thing I was assigned in grad school and the very first paragraph of the very first assignment had a triple negative in one sentence. And I thought I, I just couldn't even I, I had no words. And I found Fortunately, I found that reading things over again really helped. I, I could read something once and have no clue, and I could read it again, and start the light would start to shine now. Unfortunately, in grad school, you don't have time to read everything multiple times. But I also learned that the more you read difficult things, the easier it is. And Triple so, negative in one sentence. Yes, it was, it, was, it was bad. I think I still have the book. That's not the kind of sentence that I couldn't dislike. <laughs> yeah, it, was pretty, it was pretty bad. And it, I mean, in words, you know, eight, 18 yards long, and it was, it was bad. I remember several years ago, I was walking through the Library of Congress, and they have all these sayings and things emblazoned and carved into the granite right, and that sort of right. thing. And I remember there was a, a Francis Bacon quote, and I, and I liked it because he says that reading makes a full man, conference makes a ready man, and writing an exact man. And I really like that, that I, yeah. I want to be full. Uh, and writing does make us more precise. But, but that idea that, that by reading, we are able to, uh, to take in, to absorb, and really make our own just a wealth of knowledge that once belonged to somebody else. Right. And, and, I, and I have noticed that people who read are more interesting people to talk to than people who don't. As well, on behalf of those who read, thank you. <laughs> yes. So what are you Speaking, reading to make yourself well, more interesting? Well, I'm, I'm not going to talk about all of that. I'm reading about 10 things right now, so I'm not going to talk about all of those. But I will tell you a book that I read this week, finished this week. It was one of the ones that David assigned me. It is called Theater by W. Somerset Maugham. And I, I spell mom. M-A-U-G-H-A-M. We'll put, we'll put the titles in the show notes. How's that? That'll work. This was my fourth book by mom. And the one he's most famous for is called Of Human Bondage. I hated Of Human Bondage. I didn't believe it. I didn't. In a lot of the reading of mom I've done, I felt like mom does not like women or did he's he died in 65 so um he i felt like he did not like women and it really came through in his characters they weren't believable to me and i just what i say about of human bondage is he punctuated it well that that's about the only positive thing i can say about it well i know that makes you sleep better at night if somebody doesn't use superfluous commas (laughs) yeah right (laughs) and I've read so I've read of human bondage. I've read the moon and sixpence, which is sort of of a fictionalized, very fictionalized, based on Gauguin's life, Paul Gauguin, the artist. And I've read cakes and ale, and um, and and I hate, like I said, I hated of of human bondage. Cakes and ale and and the moon and sixpence were fine. They were I didn't hate them. I mean I I liked them okay. They weren't books that I just would rave about. But theater is by far my favorite. Mom, mom was. He was born in 1874, and he was supposedly the highest paid writer in the 1930s. He was a novelist, short stories, playwright. And so since he was a playwright and a successful one, he knew a lot about actors and actresses and just the making of plays and what goes on behind the scenes. And in theater, the protagonist is a woman, an actress named Julia, and she 
is a very sick. She's the greatest actress in England on the stage. And it she's married to a man who was an actor. He still is an actor, but he he's not a great actor, but he has great he has a very good business mind. And because he has been so smart with their funds, they have purchased a theater. They've been able to purchase a theater and he stages plays that Julia can star in. And and they're, you know, they're very wealthy and, you know, blah blah blah. And in fact, this was made into a movie a few years ago. I think it was called Being Julia, something like that, by Annette, Annette Benning is the star in that movie, I, which I haven't seen. I should, I should probably see it since I like the book. Anyway, Julia is, her, her husband is very boring. She fell in love with him because he was beautiful, and she just was swept off her feet. And he, and he was nice. He was, he was beautiful and nice. And so she figured... My wife could have written this exactly book. Exactly, so far. I may be boring, but I'm beautiful and nice. <laughs> so Julia... There's a young man, an accountant, he's young enough to be her son, who is auditing their company's books, and by a string of strange events, she she um, ends up having an affair with him. And this upsets her world in all kinds of ways, mostly because she cares more about him than he cares about her, and she doesn't like giving that power up to him. Um, it's definitely not a book that glamorizes adultery. She's miserable the whole time. And... And it's also, you know, it was, I mean, this was written in probably the 30s. I don't know exactly when it was written in the 30s, probably. And, Is and, that the setting of it, too, around yes, the early, yeah. early 20th century? Yeah, yeah. her husband, right, but right before they're married, he is, or maybe right after. Yeah. He's off in um, World War I okay. fighting and, you know, stuff like that. So the sex when it takes place is it's almost like, you know, Lucy and Ricky and twin beds, separate twin beds, or, you know, the, 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 the old movies where the, the camera would pan from the bed to the window and you'd see the curtain blowing lazily in the breeze. I mean, there's nothing explicit at all in this book. And, uh, and it's, but it's, uh, it was just very, it was very enjoyable. It, I am a sucker for happy ending. I know that you're not, the, I'm supposed to be a grown up and, you know, it, sad endings are, are fine. And I mean, I don't have to only read happy books, but I do like a happy ending. And this was a satisfying, maybe not a happy ending, but it was a satisfying ending. And the affair is over. And, you know, Julia is still with her husband. And, you know, so so that part of it is good. And I just really liked the book. It was well, good. That, that picks up on a couple of themes. What I always love as, as a pastor in reading, I like to pick up on redemptive themes. You mentioned how her life gets complicated by this affair that she should not be having. And that, that mom presents it as something that has messed up her world yeah and mom, and mom had a messed up life oh did he? yes he mm-hmm. he was married he, he has a daughter he had a daughter that was born to a woman who at the time of her of the daughter's conception she was married to someone else and so mom was named the respondent in their divorce and um it was they got married but it was not a good marriage because mom was gay <laughs> so they ended up getting divorced and the rest of his life was spent in two long-term relationships but his daughter, he ended up, he had he was an art collector because he had a lot of money, and he had deeded some paintings to his daughter, and he sold them, and she sued him. And I, I mean, just messy, you know, just yeah. a, just not a, he had a, a messy life. I don't know if it was an unhappy life, but it wasn't a, it wasn't what I would think of as a happy life. But I like how you, you speak about it, pick up on that, that particular issue of tension in the book, uh, the issue of the fair, that it, it is seen, and he doesn't glamorize it, that he presents it with all of the... The, the turmoil and the problems that it brings. And I like how you said, and again, a redemptive theme, I think when you, when you read, I think we find satisfaction in happy endings. I would look at it from, even if mom is not coming at it from a Christian worldview, I would look at it and say, well, bottom line, the Christian worldview is ultimately a yeah. happy ending. Yeah, I don't think mom, I, I don't think 
having the affair was a problem for mom. But I, but I do think he was realistic in how he portrayed the, the, that it was not something that was ever going to make her happy because it, it's just not, that sort of thing isn't designed to make one happy. And, and, it was, and it was, I think it was done very, in a, in a realistic way. And, and her husband is a good guy. I mean, you, when you're reading, when I was reading it, I, I could understand her boredom. He's not very affectionate. He's, he's kind of a stereotypical cold Englishman and really would rather not deal with all the messiness of things like sex. So he was, so her not, not being available to him was, was a relief to him, not a problem. And so I could, you can understand her, her um, boredom or her dissatisfaction in her marriage, but, but he was, a, he was a great guy, you know. You and, understand it, you don't excuse the right, behavior, right, but right, you, right, there's sure. some understanding. So he brings a, a note of realism to it, which right. I think is, sure. is helpful rather than so many books that glamorize it. Uh, to to the to the point of where it's it's not realistic to right. what to what the world really is. So so anyway, I do. I it was a great read. I read it all in like two and a half days. Um, so it, it was, was not a, of the magnitude of Dostoevsky from last not, week. It was not the Brothers Karamazov. It was a, it was a great antidote to the Brothers Karamazov actually. So and like I said, we'll put the in, information in the show notes. So tell me, I see two books stacked here. What well, have you been reading? I I did. Well, two things. First off, by starting this podcast, it actually is holding my feet to the fire just a little bit. Last week, I mentioned a book that was sitting unfinished on my shelf, right. and that was Neil Gabler's uh, biography on Walt Disney, which is pretty significant. It's, a, it's an intimidating-looking book until I showed you earlier that the last couple hundred pages of it is right. an exhaustive bibliography. I love and it when, books, when fat books have Extensive footnotes, yes. I and, read them all. I'm, I'm obsessive like that, but at least you know you're... The end is more in sight than you think. Well, I'm sitting here with two actual books. Now, did you, this is just for Theater reference. Theater was, was on my Kindle. It was a Kindle read, yes. right? And these are actually two uh, two paper books that I've got here. One is a fairly new one, uh, The Biography on Walt Disney by Neil Gabler, and then one that I'm rereading. I've got a uh, quote here from William Golding talking about his books, Lord of the Flies, right, right? Right, He said, I do like people to read the books twice because I write novels about ideas which concern me deeply and I think are important, and therefore I want people to take them seriously and to read it twice, of course, is taking it seriously. It's that idea uh, that there is reading and then there is the real work of rereading. And so I wanted to reread, but I've been doing some, uh, some graduate research in uh, the life of a uh, Puritan pastor, uh, Richard Baxter. Baxter was 1615 to 1691, and he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor. It's a much smaller book, but he does write as a, a 17th century Puritan, and he was a, a very, very well-known, very prolific in all of his writing. His Christian directory is a thousand pages or so worth of practical writings for pastor. His theology gets kind of out there, and many people are critical of that, but there's no escaping. He was a very, very practical pastor there, and he wrote this book, The Reformed Pastor. It doesn't have to do with his theology. I would say as a Presbyterian pastor, I'm reformed in my theology. But what Baxter was really getting at was there needed to be a reformation among the practice of the clergy. Did he write a book like something I've got bruised? The Bruce with, Reed is Richard Sibbs. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, okay. Another Richard. Right. Um, that, um, Sorry. But Richard Baxter, he wrote Saints Everlasting Lasting Rest and several other books like that. I was thinking of Sibbs. That's, I've read that one. But, he, but, um, but he, he was facing things like many clergy of his day might be assigned a particular parish 
as simply as a means of revenue. So when the right. offering would come in, it paid them a salary, but they would never be there. It was it was very dysfunctional in, in many ways. And so Baxter said, we need to reform these things. And as he was a pastor, he had a quite a large congregation. By today's standard, you'd have, you know, eight, 900 people in this congregation. And he was, like I said, he wrote prolifically, but he also uh, spent all day on Monday and all day on Tuesday getting out on foot with an assistant and visiting the members of his congregation. And not just, hey, how are you doing, and holding their hand and talking to them for a minute, but really diligently getting in their life and saying, if we hold these things to be important uh, as Christians, then let's talk about them. He used uh, catechism and things like that as tools to make sure that these visits had instruction along with them. Now, granted, we're talking, you know, 400 years ago, uh, but but still, we, we find very practical application today, and that's what I'm actually looking into, is how do we practically translate Baxter to the 21st century? Right. Was he a pastor in London? A uh, Kidminster, yes. So he was a, an English uh, English pastor. Like I said, he was born in Shropshire, England. He died in London. But he... Um, to have a congregation that large, when they would have all walked to church, he would, he would have had to have been in a, in a town or... City. Right. Absolutely. And so I, I reread that. I'd read it years ago, and, and I tend to, when I take books, I tend to highlight and underline. And uh, I always mean to. I always think that's a good thing. Well, it is. And I do particularly like uh, Puritan writing is they tended to write in outlines. They tended to points 1 through 12, and they would state their point. They would elaborate their point. They would summarize their point and move on to the next one. Uh, but the downside is you do have to reread because they – uh, spoke with an eloquence that we don't enjoy today. Right, right. I have, starting a couple of years ago, I did start, I have started reading some of the Puritans, and at first it's, it was very slow going, but I don't know, you sort of, you sort of start to pick up the rhythm of the language, and I'm not saying it's an, it's not what I would call an easy read, but it's something that you get, it's, it's like you, you don't start picking up a thousand pounds with picking up a thousand pounds. No. You start, you know, you start lower and where you work your way up, and, and I, I have found that with the Puritans in particular. Well, and I have to say that I long for better eloquence. I was proofreading some papers for a course that I'm teaching and, and was rather disappointed at the, uh, the level of the writing, even for uh, a, a group of individuals with graduate degrees. Yeah. And I'm, I'm reading this and thinking, we, we can do better than this. Right. We, we can up our game with regard to the language we use, the vocabulary, and particularly proofreading. Um, I, I was I was with, with you on that, Sharon. Sharon is our resident proofreader here at the church, and and uh, I know that I'll I'll put in some typos just to uh, to get her goat. <laughs> I will. I ten percent of the stress I feel in my life would be gone if people would get your and why are you apostrophe re correct or it's and it's right with yeah, apostrophe yeah, or not? Yes. Yeah. That that for some reason that bothers me less. But your and your why are you are why are you apostrophe re that that's a pet. Peeve. You know something about reading the Puritans though. Getting back to that is there is a misconception about the Puritans. We, we, tend, oh, to, we right. tend to paint them, you know, wearing black and white, uh, kind of a... Serious. And yeah, kind of a scarlet letter, harsh... If it's fun, uh, it must be sin. It is. You know, and the, the saying is that the Puritans lived in constant fear that somebody somewhere was having a good time. Right. And that's not true. No, when you, when you read not. this, you find people of great passion. And matter of fact, when you read the description of what would go on in those days, is that there would be, within the community, there'd be great joy and, and great fun would be had. The, uh, the churches, actually, among the Puritans, weren't referred to as churches. They were called the meeting house. The church was the people who met there. But the meeting house would be used for community gatherings during the week, and there would be music, and there would be quilting and meals and things like that that would go on for recreation, for fellowship, for fun in the community. And there's was, there was great joy. But they were also very serious about their faith. 
And I think that goes hand in hand. You can be very passionate as in, in joyful living and very passionate about what you believe, particularly when that belief gives you great hope and joy. So um, I really enjoyed rereading The Reformed Pastor, and I'm reading other of Baxter's works to pull out of it his practice and his instruction to other pastors on the practical aspects of pastoral ministry, and I'm trying to, to work that together toward uh, some sort of uh, a publication at, at, at some point down the road. Well, before, I'm sure we're out of time, but before we go completely, tell me a little bit about the Disney Bio. Well, it, it's great. Now, Neil Gabler, you may um, may recognize that name. He has been a host on uh, Fox News Watch. That's, that's where I am familiar with him. I used to watch that every, I think it was on, on Sundays. But he, he wrote another it. book that I, I do have on my list I'd like to read. It's called Life, the Movie. That is how entertainment conquered reality. But his, his work on Walt Disney, now, I, I worked at Disney World when I was in college. I worked oh, for the you? Rat when I was down in Orlando. I was in college for a, a summer. I was down at Disney World. I was a lifeguard. Great job for a college boy. Um, but I also got to take classes from the Disney staff. I have my master's degree. Oh, good for you. I know. Yes, if I, I, you've risen in my esteem. If, if I'd stuck around, I could have gotten my doctorate. Okay. Oh, but, gosh. Uh, but this uh, this particular book is, is really, I enjoyed it. It goes all the way back. You know, he and Roy uh, being raised in a, in a, in a poor household, uh, being, being brought up, and really paints a picture of the difficulty they went through getting uh, their business off the ground. And even his first creation, you know, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, that he actually lost creative control over that. Right. I, rem- I, I, I listened to a podcast where they talked about that. And that's why Mickey Mouse really is one of the most copyrighted, patented, protected. I mean, Disney will chase you down right. if you try to I use it. I think their- it was going to be Mortimer. Yeah, in the well, beginning. it was eventually, but I mean, originally. It, but, but his wife, I think his wife said, didn't like that name or something. And Absolutely. Now, what was interesting about reading this, there's so many aspects of, of the Disney career that captivate me. One of my favorite instances in there was uh, the creation of Snow White. You know, that, that first animated, I mean, it's just groundbreaking in terms of the innovation there. But then also his passion that he, he came and followed it up with, he looked at other things like Pinocchio and Bambi and all these others, but then Fantasia where he worked with Leopold Stokowski, who is one of my favorite conductors from the Philadelphia Symphony and then was with an NBC orchestra uh, years later. But he is the one that that stands there and greets Mickey Mouse on the podium and conducts Mm -hmm. all this beautiful music. But all the experimental things he did, the synchronizing sound along with the cartoons was something of his. And it was, was fascinating. But also how somebody with such creative passion could also be so very demanding. And you start seeing all of the, uh, the conflict and all the turmoil among creative types, uh, but also how he and his very practical brother Roy right. uh, were so very driven to uh, to the great success that the Disney name now is synonymous with. I, I remember always when when I was younger thinking Roy was just some hanger on, but I've learned since then that he was Walt wouldn't have had all the success that he did without Roy. No, no, not at all. Now, of course, when you you read about this and and one of the one of the first things that people think about is they think about the parks now with Disney World being so close to where we are. And I can remember going there early on uh, in the 70s after it had opened, you know, just a few years prior, which actually opened after Walt's death. And Roy was there for the opening. And and I remember all the rumors that circulated the first time I went is that somewhere on that property, somewhere a uh, Walt's head had been cryogenically frozen and things <laughs> I like don't that. I think I ever heard that one. You know, all these 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 rumors uh, about all these these strange things, which it's it's very reassuring to know those are not true. But it was very 
uh, interesting to see that how these beloved characters really came from a, a normal, complex human being who some people loved, some people hated, some people fought against, uh, some people would have died for, to read about the dynamic among the animators uh, and all that they went through to give us these characters that we've grown up with, Mickey and Minnie and Donald and Goofy and Pluto and, and all of them, and who continue to to generate this. So it's interesting to to look at where it started. And of course, his great quote is, the one thing we must never lose sight of is this all began with a mouse. So I uh, I really did enjoy this. I was glad that when I mentioned it last week that I realized I need to go back and finish it. Otherwise, I will be shamed. And right. I don't want this podcast to be an opportunity for my big sister that I never wanted to shame me. Well, and I will. I will. I'll be happy to take on that role. Well, so what's what's next on your reading list? Well, I am currently reading Hamilton by Ron Chernow, that book that the um, Lynn Manuel Miranda read and got the idea for his play that has been the great success. I read somewhere or, or heard somewhere that I mean it was making millions of dollars a day at one point. It was really? I mean just because of um, obviously not just the theater on Broadway, but other other theaters performing at, you know, road companies and the merchandise. And I mean, just crazy money. But anyway, I'm reading that. And it's a doorstop of a book. It's almost 800 pages. And so far, I've, I've looked at all the footnotes. And so far, they're all just really, really short. So I don't know how, how much of that is footnote. I'm reading it also on my Kindle. So I like reading on my Kindle because I like books on my Kindle if they don't have pictures, because I can read in bed easily. And, and I like to read in bed. So, um, so I'm reading that. And, and you and I are going to host a a reading group, a absolutely. reading group, and we are, and it meets. I think is it the twenty third of this month, right around the twenty third, right, right here in Montgomery at Irish Bread, and we're going to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird, To Kill a Mockingbird by so Nell Harper Lee. I do need to read that at some point. I have read it before, but only once, and and it was a long time ago. It was was it when my son, my thirty one year old son, was probably nine. So I do need to read it, um, and I will. I mean, that'll be a that'll be a theater type read. It'll it'll go fast. So well, in the same vein as as this week, another book I've got to actually bring to a conclusion is a, a wonderful biography I was reading on President George Herbert Walker Bush. Um, I got, I mean, well through it and have gotten almost to the finish line. I need to limp across. Yes, uh, yes. Much delayed, but I may be bringing you that. But even as you mentioned chair now, I don't know how quickly you'll get done with that, but um, I actually have on my reading stack his Washington A Life. A biography of George Washington was written since Hamilton. I, I am. Have you read anything else by him? I don't. I think I this don't is think my I have. first. Yeah. Um, it, I yeah. like his his writing style is very easy. It's it, and de- it's it's a good bio. I'm only I'm like seven percent of the way done, as my well, Kindle yeah, tells me. Well, that's but, good. So that'll give me a little bit of time to because the uh, the Washington biography is is also quite right, uh, right. substantial. But maybe we could compare his writing on to uh, to like McCullough or. Um, yeah, absolutely. You've got a number I of... I loved at the John Adams biography. That was that It was, was really quite, good. quite good. Well, I do think that's about all the time we've got. I hope folks are enjoying this. We do welcome your feedback as long as it's good. Yes, we have we have an actual email address for this podcast. It's Sharon at gmail.com. And Brannon is B-R-A-N-N-O-N. There's no D whatsoever in that name. Uh, my, my boss, her husband's name is Brandon. So a lot of times I will just... Brandon, yeah, I, just, I get that. Yeah. So Brandon and spelled out, 
Sharon. Sharon. All run together, no punctuation there Correct. at gmail.com. Right. So if you, if you have any any books that you are interested in, maybe I can make Brandon read one if I don't want to. And um, just anything at all about the podcast, just drop us a line and, and let us know. Well, it's always a treat. And it seems like the time goes really quickly, even yes. when I'm spending time with the big sister I never wanted. And the little brother I'm glad I never had. Well, this has been the second episode of Outside of a Dog. So we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye. Bye